0: And last week we uh, started our series here entitled, um, our message entitled, God's Future for All Believers, all those who put their faith, their trust in Christ. Uh, this text speaks to, and uh, it's encouraging. It's an encouraging word for us. And so we just want to be aware of that. And I ask you to to stand in honor of God's word as we just read uh, this text here this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will be first, will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we pray that these words would be an encouragement to our heart this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come to this text of verse 13 through 18, the conclusion here of chapter 4. And we know that uh, this is the rapture passage, the gathering away as some describe it, the catching away of the church. Um, and we have arrived at this, and, and our message, God's future for all, plan for all believers, is just that. And we, when we talk about the end times, when we talk about the future, as far as theology goes, we call that eschatology. And we talked about that last week, the study of end times, or the study of last things. And uh, we went over three, basically, main views regarding the second coming of Christ. And um, that's the, the post-millennialist view, believe that Jesus will return after a time of, of widespread e- e- gospel here on the earth. The amillennialist view, uh, they don't believe there is an earthly millennium. And then the premillennialist view, <laughs> which believe that Christ will return and rule on earth for a thousand years, literally, um, prior to the eternal state. And just so you know, if you're visiting, that's the view that we hold as a church. That's what we we believe the Bible teaches, and we'll be discussing that today. And within the premillennial view, there's basically two main views. the pre-tribulational view of the rapture, which means the Lord will come back before the tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation that you see there on your chart on the back of your outline. And when God unleashes his wrath on the earth, we believe that he will come and take away the church from that wrath and then there's also a post-tribulational view, main view, which says basically that Christ will come back after the tribulation, so the church has to go through the tribulation. And uh, some of you raised questions this past week, and, and there, are, there are other views here. I, I wanted to focus on the major views. I didn't want to uh, kind of muddy the waters. Uh, there is what some call, the there's two other views actually, mid-trib and pre-wrath view. Uh, Those are two different views, which are similar in a lot of ways. And they believe that the church will have to endure some of the wrath of God, but not all of it. Um, In my viewpoint, personally, I believe that all those views, except for the pre-trib, pre mill views, uh, do not allow for the literal interpretation of Scripture. So if you hold to any of these other views, you're going to have to spiritualize some Scriptures somewhere. Um, some people say, well, the thousand years doesn't really mean a thousand years. Well, it says a thousand years. I'm just going to take God at his word. I mean, why dance around it, right? So it's important that you understand that it's the the pre-mill, pre-trib view you would call it. You believe in a pre-millennial earthly return of Christ to start his thousand-year reign and before that, at the end of the church age, when every soul that is to be saved within the church is saved, that's why we have to be busy evangelizing, right? Because I'd like to punch out of here earlier than later, frankly. And so, you know, let's get busy and, and get the gospel out there uh, so that he can use us to draw those to Christ that need to come to Christ. And when that last soul is saved, I believe that the Lord will return for his church, Jesus Christ will. And this is what First Thessalonians describes The Lord coming back in the air, in the clouds. He doesn't come to earth during the rapture. He only comes in the clouds. And so that's when we will uh, be, you'll have the, the dead in Christ will be raised first. The Bible says, and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them and with Christ in the air. And so this describes what I believe to be the literal catching away or the rapture of the church. And all the other views, you have to kind of dance around and spiritualize a lot of scripture. And there's, there's brilliant men that believe all these things. okay. And so we just have to kind of go with what we're given. And, and just a way of introduction, a lot of people who are not in favor of a pre-trib view... Um, they will say, well, you know what, it's, it's kind of a Johnny-come-lately on the theological spectrum. And they'll say this to you. They'll say, well, it never really came until around the 19th century. It wasn't around in the times of the Bible. People didn't believe that. They believed that you had to go through the tribulation. You had to endure God's wrath and all these things. Um, I don't believe that, and I'll share why this morning, Historically. But also, if you just turn over a page or two, depending on what Bible you have, to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and remember that Paul is writing to this church to comfort them. They're a new church. They're brand new in Christ. He only had a short time with them to disciple them. They didn't know a lot of things. He taught them that Christ was going to return, obviously, because they were waiting for that return. But um, in, in chapter 5, he says this to them. He says, for God has not destined us, who would us be, the church, Paul, including himself in that, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, what does he say? Encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. And just like at the end of chapter 4, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't think my words would be encouraging to you this morning if I said, hey, you know what, you better get ready because you're going to go through seven years of hell on earth as a believer. Don't believe the lie, God's coming back for you, Christ isn't coming back. No, that's a fanciful tale that somebody made up. That doesn't sound like a lot of hope. That doesn't sound like a lot of encouragement. But it would be encouraging to know that at any time Christ could return for his church and that he would catch us away off the face of the earth and we would not have to endure seven years of his wrath here on earth. And so just a little bit of, before we even get into it, a little bit of history on the pre-trib view. A lot of people argue, well, it didn't come around until the 19th century, so therefore it's probably not true. Uh, that's probably the most common argument you're going to hear from people who would be mid-trib or pre-wrath or post-trib on the rapture. They all believe somehow it's going to happen. They just disagree when. Um, and there's a lot of problems with this argument, and I just want to share a couple. The first is that it ignores the fact that the Bible teaches, the Bible itself teaches us that when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the end times prophecies that God shares with us in the word of God, he tells us that we will not understand them until the time comes for the predicted events to occur. In other words, God doesn't tell us 2,000 years ago, hey, this is gonna happen, just so you know, I want you to know, he doesn't do that. It's not until it's about ready to happen that God shares that revelation And you can see examples of this in the Bible if you turn to uh, Daniel chapter 12. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, I'll read it for you. Verse 9, Daniel the prophet was given some very specific prophecies from God. Now remember, he was a prophet, so he heard directly from the Lord himself. I mean, we hear through God's word today we're not receiving direct revelation anymore, but Daniel was a prophet who received that direct revelation. And he was given some specific prophecies about the end times. And he began to complain to the Lord, if you will, because he couldn't understand it. He was saying, Lord, I, I hear what you're saying, but it's not making any sense to me. And the, the Lord basically responded with these word, words to Daniel, his prophet in Daniel 12.9. He says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are Concealed and sealed up until when? The end times. So he's telling Daniel, look, I know you don't understand what you're writing down. Just write it down. (laughs) In the end times, it all makes sense. Jeremiah, another prophet of God in Jeremiah chapter 23, and also in chapter 30, he says the same thing. But in Jeremiah 23 verse 20, he told the Lord the same thing. He He did it on two occasions. He'd receive these prophecies from the Lord, and he'd, he'd look up to heaven and go, God, I, I, I get it. I, I'm going to write it down, but I don't understand what you're saying here. And here's what the Lord's response was to Daniel or to Jeremiah. In verse 20, he says, the, Lord, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. And then he said this, listen, in the latter days, you will understand it clearly. In other words, Jeremiah, right now, I understand it doesn't make any sense. Right now, there's a lot of things that we have to wait for God to unravel before our eyes. And as I said last week, this is not a salvation issue. If you want to believe you want to go through the tribulation, God bless you. I would rather say, no, I'm hoping God will take us out of here. And I believe that's what the scripture teaches. Because I don't think as children of God, we're destined to undergo the wrath of God in any way. As a matter of fact... We don't incur any judgment from God because who paid for our judgment? Who paid for our sins? It was Christ on the cross, okay? And so we don't, there's no reason for us to be under God's wrath as believers. And it's only believers who have that opportunity afforded to them. So if you're not a believer here this morning, trust me, you're already under the wrath of God and you will incur much more wrath of God unless you turn to Christ for salvation, That's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't want you to stay in your sin. He wants you to cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. But there are many end-time prophecies that we cannot understand apart from historical and even technological developments. And I'll give you a couple examples. All the end-time prophecies revolving around the state of Israel. Think about this. Those prophecies were not fully understood. They couldn't grasp them. They they didn't make any sense to anyone, especially historians, before the state of Israel was reestablished in May of 1948. Before that, there was no state of Israel. So you could read in the Bible something about Israel and go, How does this even apply? What is it? Right? Because it was not established. How could you understand in the year 1900 these prophecies, like in Ezekiel 38, where it says, Russia will invade Israel in the end times? You would read that and go, there is no Israel. This must be a lie. Right? In like manner, before modern times, a lot of people had a problem in Revelation chapter 11 when it talked about the killing of the two prophets of God, the two witnesses of God, you know that, and and it says that the whole world will look upon the bodies, the whole world, and will witness their resurrection and rapture up to heaven. And people thought, that's impossible. How is that ever even possible? How is the whole world going to see an event that happens in one place? Go home and turn on your TV. (laughs) You see things in real time. Sometimes you see too much, frankly, right? Well, that was never possible before television and communication and technology came in the 1960s. It would be impossible. So the Bible clearly teaches that the understanding of end times prophecy will be, we we call it progressive in nature. We may not understand it all right now, but God's not an author of confusion. And so in the end, it will make perfect sense. And sometimes you have to wait for the proper interpretation. And I'll give you some history here. The reason the pre-tribulational concept of the rapture was delayed in its its real pushing and its real refinement until the 19th century was, guess what? It was because the Roman Catholic Church adopted St. Augustine's a millennial viewpoint, hook, line, and sinker. And they were the predominant house of faith at the time. In his book, The City of God, Augustine spiritualized Bible prophecy. He said, Well, those means, words don't really mean that. And then he began to argue that the, the millennium began at the cross and it would continue until the second coming. That's what his view was. And the Roman Catholic Church was the predominant religion at the time, you might say, in the world. And so they said, no, this is what we're going to teach. And this spiritualizing approach to the interpretation of what the words of God say, and especially concerning Bible prophecy, proceeded to dominate theology for the next thousand years. So everybody would read certain texts of Scripture, Wow, well, it doesn't really mean that, A thousand years, it doesn't really mean a thousand years. He's not really going to come to earth, even though it says he will. And both the amillennial and the postmillennial views of Christ's second coming are based on the assumption that Bible prophecy does not mean what it says. The words don't mean what they say. As a matter of fact, Protestants adopted this after the Reformation and expressed it in the the postmillennial view that really emerged in the mid-17th century. And so they were basically fed a pack of lies, I would say. And there are many conservative, there are many fundamental churches today that interpret the Bible literally from cover to cover. They say, yeah, we believe it's the word of God, except when it comes to prophecy. When it comes to prophecy, we don't believe that. (laughs) That's just, those tales are are too, too... you know, we have to allegorize them. We have to spiritualize them in some way. There, it's just symbolic. It doesn't really mean that. You know w- what it says. And what has happened is the the impact of literal interpretation. The discovery of of the distinction where the Bible makes between it makes a distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Because some people blur that and they think, oh, it's the same thing. And that's not true. The rapture of church is is spoken of in three texts, 1 Corinthians 15, this text, and also John 14. But it's, it's important because they really had to have a revival of some sort to regain some literal comprehension of what they were reading. Historians tell us that the writings of the church fathers during the first 300 years of church history, this is early on, this is 100 to 400 A.D. Okay, this is very near the time of Christ. They revealed that they interpreted prophecy for its plain sense meaning. In other words, they believed what the Bible said. Accordingly, Nearly all of them were premillennialists. In fact, Justin Martyr, who lived between 110 and 165 A.D., went as far as to suggest that anyone with a different viewpoint was heretical. So it was very strongly held viewpoint. And the revival of literal interpretation began. In earnest, you could say, among the Puritans in the seventeenth century, and it quickly led to an understanding that the rapture would be separate from and preceding to the second coming of Christ to earth. One leader, his name was Increase Mather. <laughs> Don't you like that name? What's your name? Increase. One of you's in finance. Increase Mather. <laughs> he argued. He lived in 1600, 1639 to 1723. He argued that the saints would be caught up into the air and thus escape the world's final judgment. This is very early on in the history of the church. A lot of people, when you talk to them about the pre-tribulational rapture, they said, oh, that started with, with Schofield in his study Bible. That's where they believe that it started, and that's not true. It was a Bible. I have one in my office. It's a good Bible. It has a lot of good notes in it. Actually, it was published in 1909. It publicized the idea, and it made it more popular, but it didn't start with Schofield. So let me give you a little bit of historical background when it comes to the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Um, There's a guy who wrote a book, Understanding End Times Prophecy, Ben Ware, Paul Ben Ware is his name, and he notes that many writers in the 17th and 18th century began to speak of a rapture separate and apart from the second coming. One guy in his book wrote uh, Approaching Deliverance of the Church in 1687, to give you the date, taught that Christ would come in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the Battle of Armageddon. Another commentator, in 1738, uh, some of you may have heard of John Gill, he was another one, in 1748, they both used the term rapture and speak of it as being imminent. By that, we mean there's no timeline for it. We don't know when it could happen. It could happen now. It could happen right now. Uh, It could happen tomorrow. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture of the church. It's imminent. And he goes on and he said, It's clear that these men believed that this coming will precede Christ's descent to earth in time of judgment. The purpose was to preserve believers from the time of judgment, which I believe is biblical. I don't believe as believers we will undergo God's judgment because Christ bore that judgment for us. Two other individuals, James McKnight, 1763, and Thomas Scott, 1792, taught that the righteous will be carried to heaven, where they will be secure until the time of judgment is over. There's a guy by the name of Tommy Ice, and he's the director of the Pre-Trib Research Center And he asserts that the first person to spell out in detail the idea that the rapture would occur before the tribulation begins was actually a Baptist leader named Morgan Edwards. And this was a a, a remarkable man. He was born in Wales and he preached at churches in England and Ireland before he immigrated to the United States in 1761. So this is a while ago. He became a a, a pastor of a a church in Philadelphia. He proceeded to become the founder of Brown University and was recognized as a spiritual uh, leader and Baptist historian of his day. And as early as 1740, this historian tells us, Edwards was espousing a pre-tribulational viewpoint in his writings about eschatology, end-time studies. Now, he had his... I believe he had his facts mixed up a little bit. (laughs) Uh, He held more to a a mid-trib view of the rapture, but at least he got some of it right. But it was a common census back then. It wasn't just something that Schofield invented in the 19th century. And so the modern pre-trib view was really crystallized by a name Uh, by a man by the name of James Darby in the 1800s. He lived from 1800 to 1882. And Darby was born in London, and he was trained in law. He was a lawyer. And he practiced law for only one year, and he became overwhelmed with a deep spiritual struggle in his own life. And this, this struggle finally led him to enter the ministry. And he became an Anglican priest but quickly became delusioned when the church decreed that all converts would have to swear allegiance to the king of England. And Darby considered this to be a compromise on the lordship of Christ. And so he decided to leave the Anglican church. And years following, he and other dissenters from the established state church inaugurated a movement. And we know it today as the Plymouth Brethren Movement. He established that. And in 1826, Darby broke one of his legs. And during a long recovery, he engaged in an intensive study of scriptures that convinced him of a clear distinction between the church and Israel. There are some churches today that believe that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. We do not believe that. We don't believe that it holds true to the text of Scripture. We believe that God's people are still Israel and that one day they will turn to God and they will acknowledge um, that Christ is the Messiah. That's what the Scriptures say and teach. But he also became convinced of the imminent return of Jesus. And so by... 1827, he had developed a fundamental principle, some some fundamental principles that would come to be characterized in kind of the theological system that we call dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. And so he kind of was the father of all that. And after Darby refined this concept, and basically, dispensationalism believes that God works in certain ways cer- through certain administrations during the period of time. Okay, and um, there's a lot of different views on that, but that's basically what the definition is. And he he basically refined this concept, and he it spread rapidly throughout Europe and throughout America. And um, it was always blessed by gifted communicators. Here are some of the people that would would put their name behind this view of Scripture and understanding of Scripture. In 1878, um, there was a book written by William Blackstone, and it was called Jesus is Coming. And this was back in 1841 to 1935, this guy lived. And in 1909, that's when the first uh, modern study Bible was, was published, the Schofield Study Bible, and uh, develop the scriptural arguments for the viewpoint, for this viewpoint in detail. And then some of the charts, you can see them online. This one artist was amazing. His name is Larkin, and uh, he he really has a, a book called Dispensational Truth, and he's just got all these timelines. It's kind of cool to look at. Um, or people like Harry Ironside, okay, 1876 to 1951. He was pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. He preached the concept in his sermons and, and printed them in his books in the 1930s and 40s. More recently, in the 1970s, we're probably familiar with the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey. Okay. Uh, and then even more recently, the 20th century, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the Left Behind series. And over the years, there have been many attacks on the pre-tribulational viewpoint. Um, and the crucial point is not whether the pre tribulational rapture concept, where it, where it, the point is not to figure out where it came from. The point is, does Scripture support it or not? And so this is what we're going to be spending time in in the coming weeks to look at. Um, the concept, I believe, is completely biblical, it's always been in the Scriptures. But it's been waiting for those with a literal approach to Scripture and its interpretation to discover and develop it in detail, and that's what we have today. Um, one of the early church fathers, the Shepherd of Hermes, writing in the second century, makes an interesting observation about this. He says, "The great tribulation and uh, the, the great tribulation that is coming," he says. If then you prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape it. If your heart be pure and spotless and you spend the rest of your days of your life in serving the Lord blamelessly. Uh, In medieval times, evidence of pre-tribulational thinking can be found in the recently discovered sermon attributed to Ephraim of the the Cyrene. And in this sermon... Uh, which is sometimes was written somewhere between the the 4th and the 6th century. So this goes back a ways, right? It encourages believers to prepare themselves for the meeting of the Lord. It says, Because all the saints and elect of God are gathered, there you have the idea of the gathering, the rapture, prior to the tribulation that is to come, and are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the earth because of our sins. And scholars believe this text was derived from the the writings of the original Ephraim who lived from 300 to 373 AD. He was one of the leading theologians of the early Byzantine church. And there's always been some form of premillennialism and pre-tribulational thought throughout the Middle Ages. The problem was that those viewpoints could not be expressed openly. They couldn't be expressed openly because it violated Roman Catholic dogma. If you were caught teaching something like that, they would simply kill you. So a lot of those viewpoints were kind of like spoken, unspoken, because people didn't want to lose their lives, obviously. And there were certain sects throughout history, the Lombards and the the Waldenses, and other people who were attracted to the literal interpretation of Scripture. But we don't know a lot about them because the Catholic Church declared their writings to be heretical and destroyed them. And so when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the study of end times, people have a lot of questions. It's just a a very popular subject and people have a lot of questions. People inquire about future events in history and what the Bible has to say about it. How will this work out? What's going to happen? Questions like, well, what happens when Christians die? Um, do we go right to heaven? What happens to our bodies? So forth and so on. And these kinds of questions were not um, odd to the, first, to the church in Thessalonica. They, 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 they had these same kind of questions because Paul had told them the Lord is coming back. Paul had let them know And those are the details of the kinds of questions that should be very important to us, but sometimes they can be troubling to us if we don't know the answer or we have the wrong answer. I mean, we all want to know what happens when we die or after we die. We want to know what happens to our body. Does it just go and rot in the ground, or is it going to be raised? And these are, are pressing issues for us, and they're also very pressing issues for these young believers in Thessalonica. And so... Those to whom Paul wrote this letter had only been in Christ from their pagan backgrounds probably a few months. And so they're they're really struggling with this as a baby Christian. They're really wondering, well, what's going to happen? I mean, okay, the Lord's coming back, but what is this you're, you're telling us? And they became very troubled about this. Uh, MacArthur has a lot to say about this, but he he really says that, you know what, this was a very troubling thought in this church. What is going to happen? And did we miss the Lord's return? What's going on? He told them about eternal life. We know that because he preached the gospel to them, and they believed it, and they turned away from their idols to trust in Christ. And so they knew about eternal life. They knew that salvation was kind of the same as living forever. It's synonymous with that. Living forever with God in heaven. And they also knew something about the coming of Jesus, that Jesus was going to someday return and and gather his people together and take them to be with him. They knew about the great gathering event we refer to as the rapture. They knew about that. Paul had spoken to them about it. And so there were some questions in their minds how this is all going to work out. Like if you die now and the Lord hasn't come back, are you going to miss it? You know, because I'm sure they had loved ones who had died. They were under persecution. They were probably killed for their faith. Well, the Lord hasn't come back. What if he comes back tomorrow? My loved one's already dead. What's going to happen with him? Are they going to be somewhere else in heaven or am I going to see him? They had all kinds of questions. And apparently, Paul had made this event such a, a wonderful event and something they looked forward to so much that they literally thought it, it could happen now. And that's what Paul intended. Paul believed that. Paul really believed in his heart he would see the coming of the Lord. He was waiting for that day. And that's why we should have that same hope. We should have that, that same hope. Um, idea of looking forward to that. If you, if you look back in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says so much. It was so much on their minds. When you, when you look at, at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And then he says, And how you turned, from, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is speaking of their salvation. And what? And to wait... For his son from heaven. So he must have given them some kind of information on this. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See that flies in the face of somebody who says no, no, no. I I think we have to endure all the wrath all seven years. Or we have to endure three and a half years and then God pulls us out. But it says here we're not going to. That's what Paul clearly says. And as Paul describes to them how they turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait from him, he he points out three dimensions of their salvation there. He talks about the past. He talks about them coming to a point in time where they turn away from their idols of the past. This is true of every believer. You should have a point in time. It doesn't have to be a day. It doesn't have to be even an hour. But there should be a distinct change a distinct transformation that has taken place in your life to where you can go back and say you know what yeah i rem- this this happened to me i changed and it wasn't me changing it wasn't me conforming to the church's views or rules it was god supernaturally changed me and all of a sudden all the stuff that i was going after it wasn't appealing to me anymore because god gave me new desires and now In their case, they turned away from all the idols. I mean, the idol was something special to them, if you think about it. I mean, an idol wasn't meaningless in their minds in their in their unbelief. They would worship these idols, hoping to get something from from that idol, from that god that was represented by that idol. So this was a big, big change for them. And so they turned from all that. That's their past. But then he says, you went on in the present, and what did they do? They served the living and true God. See, there's a lot of people that get to the first point, and they go, yeah, I had this wonderful experience, and, you know, I stopped smoking. When was that? Well, that was 50 years ago. Okay. How's it going for you? I don't go to church anymore, you know. But I do it at home, and that's not fulfilling what Paul said here. He said this is an ongoing transformation in your life. This is something that starts at a point in time and it has ongoing consequences. And part of the ongoing consequences for a believer is that you have a desire in your heart to serve the true and living God. That's a very real part of your faith. You don't do it to earn your faith. You do it because you have the faith. So that's when I really struggle when I... I meet believers who say they're Christians who are not serving in any way, form, or fashion. you got a problem there. It's inconsistent with what the Scripture says a believer is to be. So you have the past, turning from the idols. You have the present, serving the living God. And then the future, what does that involve there with them? He says, well, the future is you're going to be waiting for the Son to come back for you. You're going to be waiting for his Son from heaven. So the group in Thessalonica was a group that turned from their idols. They served the Lord. But then they also were a waiting group. They couldn't wait for the Lord to come back. And in second, the second chapter, verse 19, Paul refers to, to them as his hope and joy and crown. Think about that. He's calling them, you know what, you're my hope, my joy, and my crown as an apostle. In the presence of the Lord at his coming. So they must have known that Christ was coming, and they must have known that it was something very special. First of all, they would meet Jesus, and, and they, would, they were waiting for him. You know, have you ever waited for somebody for a long period of time, and they finally arrive? Why you're, you're overjoyed, Right? Hopefully, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unless it's that relative, but no, no, just kidding. <laughs> but for the most part, we're always joyful when, when we're waiting for a friend or, or something. You know, you see it all the time, just go to the airport. You know, you see the people lined up for the people coming out of the tunnel when they get off the plane and, you know, that kind of thing after they go through security, all that. And oh, you know, there's people there to greet them, right? Why? Because they're waiting for them. Secondly, they say not only were we waiting, but they were, they were Paul's crown, joy, and rejoicing of this apostle, and, and they were, were thrilled about that, that Paul would say such a thing about them. Now, turn over to chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and look at verses 1 and 2. They knew a a few other things. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, he says in verse 1, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? What's Paul saying? Because I already explained it to you when I was there with you. (laughs) I've already given you a class in eschatology. I don't need to rehash the whole thing. And then he says in verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So they also knew about the day of the Lord. Well, isn't that the rapture? No. That's different. The rapture basically is Christ coming in the clouds, the Bible describes it as, and we are taken up to meet him in the clouds. The day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and puts his foot on the earth and begins his thousand year millennial reign here on earth. They knew about this time of judgment that was going to be coming on the ungodly. They knew that when Jesus came, he would gather them to be with him. But they also knew that he would judge the ungodly. And so they were waiting for Jesus to come. They were waiting for this gathering time, this rapture. And while they were waiting, they began to get emotionally disturbed. Some of them, like I said, thought maybe they missed it. How could this happen? What's going on? And it was a real, a real uh, concern because even back in, if you look at chapter 3, this kind of shows us that this was on their minds. Paul's writing in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul has to say to them that no one be moved by these afflictions. In you know, other there's all this stuff, this persecutions you're going through. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. How do they know? Because he told them. Verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you. In other words, he told them over and over again. Kind of like Jesus told the disciples. No, you don't understand. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They didn't get it. They, they couldn't comprehend that. He kept on telling them beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So he reminds them, you know what, you shouldn't be surprised by these trials you're going through, these difficulties, this persecution. I told you it was coming. But maybe there were some that thought somehow they were going to be gathered together before all this took place personally. And in verse 2 Thessalonians, turn over to that book, you see it in chapter 2. He addresses this with him in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, notice that he's not coming to us, we're going to him. He comes in the clouds and he takes us to him. We ask you brothers not to be quickly... Shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So somebody in this church was spreading rumors to these people who were under persecution. Hey, you know what? You missed it. You missed it. Sorry. You're still here. Your head's going to be on a platter. And what would that do? That would suck away your hope. Right You would think, "Well, wait a minute. What's going on here?" And so there was an awful lot of concern. They lost their composure, and they began to ask themselves, "Had the day of the Lord already begun? What's going on here? How did we miss this?" And I think that they were living in the expectation of Christ's return. And we don't know exactly what was going on in their hearts, but they were clearly concerned. And they were waiting for this event to happen. They wanted the Lord to come. They knew that it was the the, the final climax, the culmination, the great event. They didn't want to miss it. And see, this is the reason Paul is writing this letter to them, to comfort them that's why in verse 1 or verse 13 of chapter 4 first Thessalonians he says but we do not want you to be uninformed or the word is ignorant brothers and then in verse 18 of the same chapter he says therefore encourage one another with these words give each other comfort with these words his purpose was to eliminate their ignorance and then to eliminate their grief and hopefully bring them comfort. And so this passage is not a, it's not a theological treatise on the rapture. Paul's not approaching it that way. So when people say, well, that doesn't really prove the rapture, that's not Paul's point. Paul's simply trying to quell their discomfort to answer their concerns it's it's a very pastoral response to what he got back from Timothy it's intended to alleviate the confusion the grief and the distress and bring comfort to them it's not to give a theological and eschatological delineation of every little factor about the return of the lord They were upset. They were confused. They were worried. They were fearful. And Paul, as a pastor, is trying to comfort them. So Paul writes to alleviate their grief. And I believe it's fair to say that that Paul had communicated to them that Jesus would come in their lifetime. I believe he believed that. That's why we refer to it as the imminent return of Christ. I mean, if, if, if they didn't believe that, then why would they be asking these questions, right? It <laughs> doesn't make any sense. So the major question here is what happens, what's God's plan for Christians, for believers who die before the Lord returns? And they had the impression from Paul that this could happen at any moment. And they were deeply concerned about the issue. So he says, hey, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as do the rest, look, who have no hope. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant as a result of being ignorant, grieving. And I don't want you to, I don't want you to worry about those who have died. That somehow thinking you missed the Lord's return. And you say, well, how did Paul know that they were thinking this? Remember, Timothy wrote, he visited them. They expressed these concerns to Timothy. And then Timothy writes, uh, comes to Paul and tells him. So now Paul is writing in response to what he heard from Timothy. I mean, if you look at, at verse 3 of Chapter, uh, chapter, th- chapter 3, verse 1, you remember that he mentions how he couldn't endure any longer not knowing about them. Paul was very concerned for them. And in verse 2, he says, we sent Timothy. And in verse 6, Paul says, Timothy has come back. And when Timothy came back, it was Timothy that brought us good news about a couple things. What's interesting, he says in verse 6 of chapter 3, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news, look what it says, of your faith and your love. What's missing? Well, from verse chapter 1, he talks about verse 3, their faith, their labor of love, and what's the third one? The steadfastness of hope. Isn't it interesting? Timothy comes back and he says, hey, they got, they got their faith and their love. That's strong. In the hope area, there's a little problem, Paul. They're getting a little mixed up on this return of the Lord. And when Timothy came back, apparently he only brought to the, Tim, Paul good news about their, their faith and their love because their hope was messed up. They were confused on this. And so he begins, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be mixed up about this. And this is interesting that he starts in verse 13 with the word, but. But. We don't want you to be uninformed. Uh, We don't want you to be ignorant, some translations say. And, And this is Paul's way of changing the subject. He's writing a letter. He's finishing in verse 12. And then he says, okay, now new, top, new, top, new topic, new subject. He's changing. That's why in your Bibles, most Bibles, they'll have a new heading there. Headings aren't, they're just put there by men, but they help us kind of delineate the subject changes and things like that. So in my Bible, right before verse 13, it says, the coming of the Lord in bold print. And before that, in chapter 4, it says, a life pleasing to God. So he's talking about a life pleasing to God, and then all of a sudden he switches. To the coming of the Lord. Because he knew this was on their heart. And so that word, but, marks a change in course. Brothers, the word brethren or brothers, is a call to attention. You know, it'd be like if I said, listen up, beloved. You know, Listen up, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd be, I'd be wanting to make an a impact on what I'm about to say. And so he says, I want you to pay attention about what I'm going to say here, Brothers. Don't be ignorant about this. And in terms of affection, he had a love for them, and so he could definitely call them brothers and sisters in Christ. But he introduces this new new subject, and you say, well, what's the new subject? Well, we're told in verse 15. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you, In other words, everything I just told you, I'm declaring to you by what? What's it say? A word from the Lord. Wow. This is something that hasn't been unveiled before. This is something that's new. It's a new subject. By word of the Lord, a revelation that he personally had received. Paul had received many revelations from the Lord. I mean, he wrote much of the New Testament. We know that to be true. We know that the Lord spoke to Paul. One, one place it's recording is on the road to Damascus, right, when he's going to persecute Christians. And what happens? The Lord appears to him, and he says, who are you? And what's to say? I am Jesus whom you persecute, Paul. He heard a voice. So the Lord was able to communicate to Paul. Now, we don't have this privilege today because the text of Scripture is complete. We don't believe that we're writing new chapters of the Bible. You're not going to, you know, okay, hear me come next week and say, well, you know what? God revealed something to me this last week, and I'm putting it after Revelation. It's called the book of Stephanus, and it's got all this, this, you know, you would say you're nuts, right? Well, people do this all the time. Thus saith the Lord, and they're not quoting Scripture. Okay, Jesus met him while they were shaving and saw him in the mirror or something. Who knows? Um, And I always ask that person who says something like that, well, what did you do? What do you mean? I said, did you keep on shaving? I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to you and you had the wherewithal to just keep on shaving? You didn't cut yourself? I mean, it's one of you didn't fall on the floor, you know, prostate before your holy God, right? I mean, they make it sound so simple. Uh, It's not simple because it never happened, frankly. But here he introduces this subject, and it's a a word of the Lord. Now, there was nothing among the Old Testament prophets about the rapture of the church. You're not going to find it in the Old Testament. There was certainly a lot about the coming Messiah. They understood even the resurrection of the dead, but there was nothing about the rapture of the church. There was no teaching that those who are alive and remain will be caught up. That was brand new stuff. You're getting it. First, right here in Thessalonica. From God through the Apostle Paul. This is all brand new. And remember, I mean, just so you understand the context of this letter, this epistle that Paul wrote to the church here, the Thessalonians. Um... When this was written, um, th- th- this is most likely, historians say, one of the earliest epistles to ever be written in the New Testament. So this is important. Why? Because there was no evidence of other scriptures for the reference to. Uh, there was no book of Revelation. That wasn't written yet. Do you understand? Um, this, didn't, this was probably written 35 to 40 years before most of these things. So they had no knowledge at all about a lot of the things that we turn to Revelation go, oh yeah, we understand this. They, didn't, they couldn't do that. So it had to come specifically to Paul via the Holy Spirit through direct revelation. Now look at, at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Because I mentioned this is the other area of, and we went through this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but a little bit of time. We're running out of time quickly, but 1 Corinthians, I just want to point out these verses here. Verse, chapter 15, because Paul said that it came from the word of the Lord. We're not told where he got it or when it happened. We're not given that. All we know that he claims that it came directly by Jesus, from Jesus Christ. And that's the, back in Thessalonians, that's the, the, the Greek grammar there. It came from the Lord and the Lord alone. And, and also, in 1 Corinthians, look at what it says in verse 51. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. I think MacArthur says that's a, a verse they have in their nursery. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I want to put that up in the nursery. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Um, and then he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's not the blink of an eye, that's the time it takes light to refract off, off your lens. I mean, it's just unbelievably fast. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and look at this, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, we who are still alive. See, when we say it's a a revelation from Jesus Christ himself, that's that's a pretty big statement to make. Paul doesn't say that anybody gave this to him; they couldn't have. Why? Because he says, "I'm telling you a mystery. This is a mystery. Nobody's ever heard this before." Now, a mystery is not something that's mysterious. In our language, that's how we look at it, right? If we think of something that's a mystery, well, it's spooky, it's mysterious. No, that's not the word here. The word mystery is, it's, it's very, our word is very much like the Greek word. The original Greek word is mysterion. Mysterion, mystery. All they did is just transliterate it right over. They didn't even create an English word for it. They just took the Greek and made it in the English, the same way it, it sounds. Mysterion, mystery. And when we say that in English, we think something's mysterious. That's not the meaning of the word. The word mystery in Greek, in the New Testament times, it's referred to this. It's, it's speaking of a fact that something was not known in the past, but is now being revealed, or is revealed. A mystery is something that is factual, it's factual, but nobody knew about it. But now we do. Um, an example of a mystery, simple in history, in our history as the world, we would say that you can track throughout history at one point in time men believed the earth was flat. Common belief. But guess what? It wasn't. <laughs> right? The fact was true that the earth was still round even though they believed it was flat. They just didn't have the scientific and the knowledge that we have today through space and everything to view it and go, wow, no, it's not flat. It's round. It didn't change the fact because they didn't know the fact that it was round and they said it was flat. It's important that we understand it that way. And so here when we're speaking about the rapture this is a mystery this is something that's never been revealed before Nothing was mysterious about it except man's knowledge wasn't there yet about the fact of the rapture Now according to the Bible the rapture which will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye it's a mystery that's what the Bible says and you notice here, he doesn't say the resurrection's the mystery. These people knew about the resurrection. Jews knew about the resurrection. Everybody knew about the resurrection. It's all over in the Old Testament, all over the place. Every believing Jew knew that people could be, would be uh, looking forward to a resurrection of the dead. So it's not the dead will be raised. That's not the mystery. He says, I tell you a mystery. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, the mystery is we will not all die. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die, but we will be changed. The mystery deals with the fact that not everyone will die or sleep before the Lord returns for his church. And back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, because we who are alive and remain... Meaning there will be believers who are alive at the time this event happens. I mean, can you imagine that? All of a sudden, man, you're just going up through the ceiling in your glorified body. Your spirit is your soul is just leaving, your body's just boom. Crazy, trance, just changed. And so here we'll deal with this ignorance that has resulted in their confusion. Now, I want to close with one thing here, just so we make a little bit of headway. Notice he says, those who are asleep. Why does he use the word sleep? Whenever I've read this, I always say, well, it means, you know, I've read this at funerals lots of times. And when I say, you know, those who are asleep, in other words, they're dead. Okay. Um, that word sleep, koima, is the word from which we get our word Cemetery. Interesting. And that's really the early Christians' optimistic name for a graveyard. Why? Because it meant a sleeping place. A sleeping place. It's really a a synonym for dormitory that you sleep in at college, a place where people sleep. Now, how is it that Christians are speak, spoken of here as sleeping? Back here in 1 Thessalonians, we we're not all asleep. First of all, it's in the present tense form. It's the idea that of those who are continually falling asleep. What do we see in the church? How many, how many funerals have we had here? Right? Can we even number? What happens? People die. Okay, and they leave this earth, but the Bible doesn't say they die. The Bible says they sleep. And so, what's the big deal here? What's you know, these people are dying. Christians are dying. They're continuing to die. You're saying, and he's saying, don't be ignorant of what happens to people who die in the Lord. What happens to them after they die? The the word sleep in the Bible is is used of normal sleep the time that our body recovers at night or during the day or whenever you sleep. And in John chapter 11, verse 12, it's used in the normal sense. But the word sleep also for Christians has a unique, you could say, definition. And it's used a number of times of Christians. They don't just say, oh, the Christian died. They always say that the Christian fell asleep or the Christian slept. It always refers Um, to their bodies. It's used in times of Christians. And it's always not talking about their soul. It's talking about their bodies. The only part of us that goes into any state of unconsciousness at death is the body. Our soul is very much alive. right? So much so, the Bible says, to be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Okay, And so in John eleven eleven, our friend Lazarus, it says he has fallen asleep. And Jesus said, go, I'm going to go, and I'm going to wake him out of his sleep. Now, was he just sleeping? No, the, the text, if you look at John 11, very clearly indicates that Lazarus was dead. By all means, his physical body had given up its life. As a matter of fact, they were kind of ticked off because it was three days, and they were saying, hey, Jesus, by this time, don't go in there, man. His body's going to (laughs) stink, right? He's going to stinketh. Don't go there. Decay has set in. He had been entombed. He's dead. But from Jesus' view, he was only asleep. His soul was alive, not bound in the grave. We don't know where it was or what it experienced at this point, but Scripture doesn't tell us that, but it does not pass out of existence. So his body is at rest, and Jesus saw that as temporary, and that's why he calls it sleep. Hopefully here today you recognize that sleep is something you do on a temporary basis. Right? If you sleep permanently, guess what? You're dead. Okay, so, so hopefully, even if you sleep, you know, 23 hours a day, hopefully you wake up for that one hour to get some water or food or whatever and go back to sleep. And if you didn't wake up, you'd be what? You'd be dead. And so the Bible describes sleep, Christians, as when they die, as sleeping because it's temporary. It's something that you wake up from. And Jesus saw the death of Lazarus as a temporary state of his body. And even when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, verse 60, it says, Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, it says he fell asleep. What do you mean he fell asleep? <laughs> he died. But we describe it for Christians as a temporary state of being. And so in Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says of Christians, many among you are weak and sick and a number, what's he say? Sleep. Once again, he refers to the death of a Christian as sleep because it's a temporary state of their physical body. In 15.6, 1 Corinthians, it talks about Christians who saw the resurrected Christ. Many of them remain until now, but then he says some have fallen asleep. Um, in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep. He says it over and over and over again, and it refers to the Christian's death. And so it's a temporary thing. It doesn't refer to soul sleep. Never has, never will. There's no such thing as soul sleep for the Christian or the non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian here and you're hearing this message, I would trust that you would put your faith, your trust in the risen Lord and his work on Calvary because one day you will die. And then it will be too late. But your soul will not die. Your soul will live for all eternity in hell, a place of torment we don't want anyone to go there. And so there's no such thing as souls sleeping. And when Stephen was dying, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my what? My spirit, my soul. So he had anticipated the Lord returning. So to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. There's no purgatory. There's no in-between place. There's no state of unconsciousness or semi-consciousness. There's no spiritual coma. Call it whatever you may. Even Paul in Philippians 1.23 says, It's better that I depart and be with Christ. <laughs> right? Uh, you're either here as a believer or you're with Christ. There's no in-between place. Um, and the same thing for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever and you die, you, draw, you go directly into a place of torment. Um, and so Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like other people who have no what? Have no hope. Thessalonians, remember, you have hope. You have hope that the Lord will return. You have hope that those who have gone before you as believers, you know, maybe you said, be- said goodbye to them before they died, right? I remember when my brother-in-law died, I had the opportunity to share with him. I kind of said my peace with him. But you know what? You never say goodbye to a believer for the last time. Right? You never do. Because you'll see him again. We'll all see each other in heaven one day, right? Amen? And that's what we have. That's where that hope comes from. And so we'll continue this next week. But let's close in a word of prayer and... Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and Lord, I just pray that these messages will be an encouragement, a comfort to us as believers, Lord, that we would understand that, Lord, you are returning for us, that you are coming back for your church. And Father, we don't know when, and we may not have all the details on how this is going to work out, but Lord, we have enough to look forward to that glorious thing, and Lord, we ask, Father, that we do everything we can to serve you in the meantime until your return. And Father, if there's those within the hearer of this gospel who have not yet put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now would be the day that they cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, I'm acknowledging my sin before you, a holy God, and I pray that you would save me from my sin as I put my faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart, he'll answer. He'll transform you. He'll give you new desires, make you a new person, a new creation in Christ. And that just speaks to how bad we are. He can't just put a band-aid on us. He has to recreate us in Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for your provision. And we pray, Lord, that we would look forward to this day, pray for the time across the way in our fellowship, that you would bless that, bless the food to our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.